Welcome to the Draft Deeper Podcast. This is your host, Nathan Grubel. Joining me as always is my producer, Kevin Black. And rejoining me on this podcast feed, one of, one of my favorite guests to have on this podcast. I've been on his pod. He's been on my pod plenty of times. Should feel honored. This is the first pod. I have a brand new audio setup that I'll be testing out. Hopefully we get all the fun and rave reviews on the social media waves. But joining me here for an off-season podcast to do one of our favorite exercises I think we could do on a podcast feed. This man is very well accustomed to re-tiering or redrafting, as he likes to do with Sam Ferris over on his podcast feed. If you haven't listened to these episodes of Chucking Darts, please go listen to those episodes. But Chuck, you are the man of the hour, my friend. You're back on the podcast feed to join me for, as you just said before we started recording, one of your favorite exercises of the day. How are we doing, buddy? Oh, we're doing great, Nathan. Thank you so much for having me back. And thank you for that very organic plug. Um, yeah, Sam and I released, we're doing a, a project where we're ranking every player that we would sort of as future assets uh, from the last three drafts, 2020, 2021, 2022. And hopefully all things, if everything goes according to plan, Part two of that, which will be players 16 through 30, will be out um, probably when people get this, if you know, depending on when this gets released. So that should be in your feeds very, very soon. But I'm thrilled to be back to talk about uh, 2021. It's a draft that I said was the deepest draft in 20 years or 30 years or ever, depending on how optimistic a mood I was in in a given day. <laughs> Um, and I'm pretty optimistic right now, so I'm happy to call it the best draft ever or the deepest draft ever. How are you? I'm doing well, Chuck. I, I agree with you. I think 2021, the exercise we're going to be doing today is we're, we're going to essentially be re-tiering, or at least I'm going to be re-tiering. I think you made up some re-tiers of your own as well with the 2021 NBA draft class. The next two podcast episodes are going to focus on re-tiering as we go through, as I said, one of my favorite off-season exercises. I'll have a 2020 episode out at some point next week, but Chuck's here with me to go through 2021. So I will go through my, my tier system and then how I do it. And I will have Chuck go through his system as well before we really get into the meat and potatoes of that podcast. But really, Chuck, before we start that exercise, I told you I would just start out this podcast with any, any general thoughts you, you would like to get out there about Vegas Summer League or the Utah Summer League that has happened or the California Classic, any Summer League takes that you want to get out there i just released on my podcast feed some of my reactions but any anything you want to discuss uh nothing super super deep nothing that probably you and others have not already remarked on but um keegan murray is real real good <laughs> and i like everyone liked keegan i liked him too i ended up with him though probably a little lower than some others i had him ninth <clears throat> on my board but I just love watching that guy shoot and watching him move. And I had a, I liked him and Johnny Davis both for how well conditioned they were as athletes on both sides of the ball. And Keegan is showing that not only is he super well conditioned, but that his shooting touch um, really is his best skill and attribute. And that his size at six, eight being a big wing just makes him, so much more dangerous, um, unfortunately, than Johnny, who sort of has an uphill climb ahead of him. But just 
the the different angles that Keegan gets his shots off, uh, the confidence that he has really, um, whether he's on balance or off balance, his fearlessness, I've, I've really enjoyed watching him. And I, you know, I think it must be very gratifying for Kings fans who took a lot of grief uh, draft night and in the weeks after draft night, uh, just to see what a good player they really have. I still would prefer Jaden Ivey, but that's not really the point of this little soliloquy. The point is to say that Keegan Murray is really good. It's been great watching. It's funny you say that because I, in my rankings, I had Jaden Ivey one spot ahead of Keegan Murray. And I, I understand it's summer league. We're not going to give any, uh, ridiculous overreactions or any ridiculous takes here but I leave myself thinking should have I had Keegan Murray at number four one spot ahead of Jay Nivey just because I feel his game his game just translates so well to the NBA and I think what what you and what others have talked about on social media Chuck is I've seen that the movement shooting the overall shooting ability really unlocks so much of his game and it makes him um, a, a really interesting piece to any rotation, but in particular to that Kings rotation. And I understand there have been some, some defensive things that, that he will need to work on at the NBA level, although he still has been an active defender in terms of making plays on the ball. I, I, I loved what I saw from, from Keegan before I got to Vegas in some of the summer league games. I, I love what I've seen from him when, when I was in Vegas. We, we had up-close seats to when he hit that ridiculous shot to send um, that game, the overtime, that was, oh, that was really sick. awesome to yeah, see. You were, you were courtside for that? That's awesome. We, yeah, we were, we were up close and, and personal for that one out at Las Vegas. So that was, that was really fun to see. But I, I would agree with you. Keegan Murray should have caught everybody's eye. And if anybody doubted that he was going to translate as well as he has, at least in these summer league moments, com in comparison to what he did in college, I think more of those doubts should be wiped away for, for some of those quote-unquote Keegan Murray non-believers i know his game might be boring for some but chuck you, you and i love to embrace those types of guys and i know rucker and i talked about that multiple times uh, on the podcast we, we like we like really smart and technically sound basketball players i know you would agree well and especially big wings who really really shoot and if you yep. want if you want to just nail another segue i mean i don't want to spoil today's episode but i thought uh trey murphy the third played pretty well in his two games <sighs> that he appeared in for the Pelicans. I thought he looked very explosive at 6'9 plus or 6'10, you know, and his three didn't even fall, which is the best part of his game. Most everything was him attacking off the catch or off a closeout and getting to the rim and finishing. So I thought he looked great too. But I, I don't think you need to worry about um, having ranked Ivy ahead of Murray because I all honestly, you know, Ivy went down with that ankle injury, although he looked great in the couple minutes, you know, before he suffered that injury. Um, I think that had he been healthy, then the predominant narrative coming out of summer league would be that the play, the two players who looked at the very best, just in that pressurized small environment mm -hmm. would be uh, Chet and Jaden Ivy. I think that's what people would mostly be saying. But that's just a hunch I have. So let's let's just get my one big takeaway from from watching Summer League. And let's just get this out of the way, because I feel like it's going to be a common theme as to a lot of what we talk about today with, with the 2021 NBA draft classes. And in just watching some of these games, Chuck, the, the positional 
size that is all over the place on the court now. The positional size, the the extra length, the wingspans. You really need to have guys on your team who either match that positional size more than ever, or you need to have the guys like Jay Nivey who has that, that game-breaking speed, that real equalizer to that plus positional size and length. I really think it's, it's, it's more important now, or at least it feels like it's more important now than ever because we watch some of these other guys who don't have some of those same traits and they're, they're struggling. Like one of my favorite guys from last draft class who I know we're going to talk about um, dro- dropped down quite a number of tiers for me because I he, he didn't really break out last year and I, and I got to watch him in, in summer league this year and some guys like him, but really Jared Butler's who I'm talking about. I mean, yeah, he, I figured, yeah. He, he doesn't, he doesn't look like the same guy, Chuck. And that's just that that's really my overarching theme to, as to what a lot of we're going to talk about today is that just where the game is going. I feel like now more than ever, if you don't have those equalizer traits, it's going to be really hard for you to let alone succeed at a high level, but really stay on an NBA floor for a significant amount of minutes. Especially if you don't profile as a star, like, yep. like the whole thing with stars is that they, you know, we can disagree about one star prospect versus another star prospect, but those are fun disagreements. Star prospects, star young players let you know very quickly and very loudly that they are stars. So John Moran doesn't have to worry about losing his place in the new NBA because every, you know, it's quite obvious how good he really is. But if you are trying to lock down a starting role, if you're trying to have a 10-year career where maybe you don't profile as an all-star, then yeah, the positional size really jumps out because how else are you going to, how else are you going to win? Like Mm -hmm. I, I thought um, that this draft was very interesting because what were for many people, the three best prospects in the draft were all six, 10 plus, and you heard positional size and skill for size with all three of Paolo and Chet and Jabari Smith Mm -hmm. um, consistently. And I actually thought that that missed a little bit of nuance because if you're drafting at the very top and you're looking for true stars, then yes, if they happen to have positional size, then that's great. But the focus should really be on the skill package. If you're looking Mm -hmm. for a star, because that's what stars are. They're the most skilled players in the world. But once you get down just from that tier, if you go from tier one to tier two, then positional st- size, I think, starts mattering, you know, an incalculable amount. I would I would agree. And, and before we get started on the exercise, we'll do that very shortly. I just, you, you mentioned Trey Murphy. I'll throw in the comment. I, I did not expect Trey Murphy as far as his physique to look like what he does right now. Holy shit, Chuck. He, he looks <laughs> like he's ready to fight somebody and he's going to win that fight every single time. He, he is huge. Did you expect him to, to really add that much to his body that this quickly in his career? Uh, you're asking the wrong guy. Nathan. My <laughs> answer is going to be yes, I did, but I I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I'm Un, I am biased is what I mean to say. Sure. But yeah, like Trey, Trey's been my guy for, you know, over a year now. I thought that he was so underrated and had such a bright future. So 
Um, I think it's great for him that he went to New Orleans because that's a team that really is embracing drafting and developing and having that be their identity. I think there's a, a potential in the West for there to be a fun little rivalry between them and the Memphis Grizzlies. And oh, your 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 dart your dart filled Pelicans are going to be coming for blood next year. I can yeah, I can man. agree with the, you on that one. Those two teams still in the same uh, division, so they'll play each other plenty with really uh, just absolute superstars at the top and then just young talent that they've developed dotting everywhere else on their rosters. I think that is sort of the NBA nerds, probably the, like the person who listens to our shows, that's a rivalry (laughs) that they could really get into. And I'm looking very much forward to that. But yeah, as far as Trey goes, I'll get to him pretty quickly on our list here. I'll put it that way. But yes, I expected him to make, sort these sorts of gains oh i know all of the draft sickos out there who listen to both of our shows i i would agree they would embrace that rival you're they're, they're listening to somebody who when i did a a pre-summer league you know top five teams i'm most excited to watch i had the memphis grizzlies as a part of that top five because i just wanted to see the weird and wonderful uh, of mm-hmm. that roster and that weird and wonderful is played out in, in many different ways. Some of the guys on that roster, Chuck, I know you embrace one of those guys in particular, Jake LaRavia. I mean, not to make this mm-hmm. a 2022 episode, but we, we talked about Jake LaRavia on this podcast feed, but they got, they got David Roddy, another one of your guys who you called out early on last draft process. He he's been playing really well. The last few games, Kenny Lofton is turning some heads, mine included <laughs> yeah. Kennedy Chandler standing out like that. That Grizzlies team, the fact that they can sport out with Zaire Williams and Xavier Tillman, like a legitimate six-man unit in Summer League that can also be the 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 six through ten of a really good NBA team, that that's absolutely ridiculous. So I would agree with you. The depth that Memphis has, it, it, it's pretty wild. Any and, any other thoughts about Memphis's Summer League run? Um really great to see Kennedy Chandler go to that environment. Cause that was always a guy who was NBA who had NBA talent, clear NBA athlete, um, NBA level intellect. But uh, with his shooting the, I was very worried he would get lost in the shuffle of wherever he went, mm-hmm. but you don't get lost in the shuffle in Memphis. If Memphis drafts you, then they have an idea for how to use you. And so happy for him. Very happy for Vince Williams uh, Jr. as another. Guy I did not I mention Vince Williams. I forgot about him. My apologies. That's yeah, it's all right. Um, but he, you know, his very much, very much fits into the Memphis ethos of very high field guys who know how to pass and shoot and defend. So happy for them. And one quick other shout out before we get into the meat here is another guy that we discussed on an episode is my guy uh, Jabari Walker getting himself a guaranteed contract after getting drafted in the 50s. So um, I have thought highly of Jabari for quite some time. He's another one who has positional size because he's 6'9 and can slide on the wing on the perimeter defensively, and he just can shoot the hell out of the ball, and he plays very, very hard, and that is usually a winning combination, so very happy for him. Oh, he's looked good on both ends of the floor for, for Portland in this summer league run. So it's no, no surprise that, um, that he got a contract like he did. And I, he was a guy I was skeptical on when you and I talked, Chuck, I ended up swinging myself around to him a little more. I had him in the thirties, which was a far cry from where I had him at one point. I did have him in the fifties closer to where um, he was taken, but 
nevertheless, um, I, I'm really happy for a lot of these guys who have already played well in summer league and have earned themselves contracts and have proven that they belong on an NBA floor. And that's, that's always fun to see with summer league. Summer league is one of my favorite times of the year. I will watch all these games to, to death. Like I'm a maniac, but that's, that's who we are, Chuck. That's who we are in, in, in hard and sphere. And that's why we're, we're doing podcasts like, like, like you and I are doing. And <laughs> it just, it's, it's more of what we're going to get into today with why we're here, a 2021 NBA draft class re-tiering. So I will go through and remind the audience first of how I operate with my tiers, how I do this before every draft class. And then Chuck, I will, I will give you the floor after that. I'll let you go through your tier system, which I think you and I are on pretty similar wavelengths with how we do it, just minor differences. Um, mm -hmm. So if I have a player tier one, that means that I consider them to have an upside of being an MVP caliber player, which I do consider a step up from what I would have tier two Tier two, I would believe you to be a potential all-star, whether that's a one-time all-star, maybe even a multi-time all-star in some of these cases, but not, not quite on the same level as if I rate you a tier one, I do think you're a potentially franchise altering player. That that's that's the high regard that I hold you in. Then tier three, I would grade you out as the potential to being an NBA starter. Tier four, I have multiple different player categories. And here I have a, if I would consider to be a fifth starter. So the, the last guy who's really shoehorning themselves into that starting lineup or a sixth man playing potentially starters minutes, or that that's also where I would consider quote unquote specialists to fall in the category of a tier four as well. Then tier fives, tier five, tier six, tier seven, we get into the, the bench rules. So tier five, like a seventh through ninth man, tier six, a 10th or 11th man. And then tier seven, I mean, you friend fringe NBA player is what I will call it. So those are my tiers one through seven. Um, Chuck, why don't you go through and kind of give the audience your tier system and how you wanted to approach today's exercise? Sure. Uh, very similarly, my first tier actually only has one player in it. Um, but wow. it is, it is what I, it's not quite MVP potential. It's um, although this person probably has MVP potential, but it's a uh, first team all NBA is how okay. I think of it. And then uh, my tier two is sort of multi-time all-star, you know, all NBA being on the table, um, clear value in, in multiple rounds of the playoffs. That's tier two tiers, three, four, and five are all sort of degrees of starters. So tier three is guys who I think basically are good enough to start right now and to continue to get better and who could start on most, if not all teams. I, mm -hmm. you know, 30 team starter is a phrase I keep talking about on my podcast is guys having the quality and the versatility to fit lots of different types of schemes and roster yep. constructions. That's really what I'm talking about with tier three um, with tier four. It's, players who I think are good enough to start in short order, even if they're not quite there yet. Um, really just the same idea as tier three, but just a little bit of a step down. Just, I have a little bit less confidence in, you know, just how certain they are to be valuable starters across the league, but sure. still excellent, excellent pro uh, prospects, prospects who are, you know, lottery prospects in any other draft class. And then uh, tier five, is getting more into that sort of fifth starter 
high utility bench kind of role. And that sounds like maybe I'm diminishing those players, but those are players who get paid the mid-level exception and are going to under the next CPA or when the next <laughs> TV money kicks in, make $14 million a year playing basketball. So again, in any other draft, these are players who go from anywhere from, you know, eight to 20. But in this loaded year, that tier starts at 24 for me and goes through 37. So, and then uh, tier six is, which was the last tier I had are, like you said, uh, valuable players, players with value in the league, but are usually going to be coming off the bench and have a, a more narrow role that they fill than the tiers ahead of them. So that's where I'm coming from. So your tier system, in, in reality, for anybody listening and they wanted the, the Cliff Notes versions of both of our tiers, it's really, I, I, I view the, the starters path more on my tiers one through four. Um, you, you have kind of like a tier in between my tier th- tiers three and four, so to speak. You have it broken out. Really, tiers one through five is where that right. type of player you would find. And, and it's really interesting you mentioned that count that count, that number cap you gave between tiers one through five of 37 players. You know what's interesting about that, Chuck? I just made the comparisons between my tiers one through four and your tiers one through five and how they're really the same thing. Last year, when I did my tiers, I also had a count of 37 players in in my quote-unquote starter level tiers, which is really interesting because it shows that we're, we're along a similar line of thinking, but you've called this the deepest draft ever that that's how you've dubbed it. And I certainly would agree that it is, it is an abnormally good draft to where when I go back and I look at previous years, the further away I get from that specific draft year, I I sit down and I try and do an, an, an exercise similar to this. Generally that number of players at the very least between tiers one through three, for me, it continues to diminish and diminish and diminish and go down. And 37 through my first four tiers, your first five tiers, that, that is a really, really high number to hand out that type of a grade to. Usually the, that number is not that high. It certainly wasn't that high for me for 2022. But I make comparisons as to when I sat down and I re-tiered this class and I look at my tiers one through four, I have 28 guys now that I would count that fall in those tiers and between tiers one through three, which are really like my more sure thing of bets to at least being starters in the NBA, that number in a redraft usually sits or a re-tiering usually sits for me at about 13 to 15 guys. When I go back and I would redo Mm -hmm. such an exercise right now, that number is sitting at 20. So even so a little bit closer to that 15 mark, but still, um, a, a much higher player account, which speaks to everything that you would talk about, about this being arguably the, the deepest draft class ever. If I were to tell you, again, just to reiterate that after doing this exercise, my tiers one through four encompasses about 28 players. Does that number seem too high for you, too low for you, or does it seem about just right? Uh, I mean, it's a little lower than the number I've got, but I don't think that makes it a bad number at sure. all. I mean, cause I think when you get, especially when you get down to the lower, it, I mean, it sounds insulting to say lower cause all these guys have so much promise, but when you get <laughs> down to, you know, 
player number 25 and on, then it does flatten out a little bit. And, yep. you know, from player 25 to 35 or 40, then you can sort of, you can put that tier line in lots of different places. So I don't think it's inappropriate at all. If anything, it's probably the more responsible thing to do because the odds are always against there being, you know, 30 plus players who end up starting and having multi-year or multi-contract careers in the NBA. Um, I'm just going to be irresponsible because it's fun. (laughs) And I like so many of these guys so much. And if I'm, if there was ever a draft to be too optimistic on it's 2021. And we're also only a year removed. And I could, I could be making a declaration to where I moved a player down uh, a tier or two and by the time we're doing a podcast like this next summer, they, they could move right back up to potentially where I had them um, when, when I was actually tearing them during the respective draft year. So who, who really knows at the end of the day, how this is going to play out. We could add another two years onto this and the results could still completely shift and, and alter. And that's, that's the beauty about what we do. We evaluate and we adjust based on the information we have in front of us. And as new information comes in, we adjust our lines of thinking and we adjust our, our rankings and our evaluations. That's, that's how the business goes. So it's, it's why I like to do exercises like this every year during the off season, when I have some time to really sit down and think about where do these guys fall in the current landscape of the NBA? How is the league shifting? What are the changing trends that, that are in place now that are shifting around some of these rankings and some of these lines of, of thinking and, and philosophies. That's, that's the beauty. That's the fun of all of this. So let's, Let's dive into some of these rankings. So I'm going to start at the very top in tier one. Chuck, when I did this last year, I had two guys in a tier mm-hmm. one, which for me, tier one, tier one for me is, is it's rare air, right? I don't always have guys in that top tier every single year. Matter of fact, in 2022, I did not have any of those top three names, Chet Holmgren, Paolo Bencaro, or Jabari Smith in a tier one. That is how in high regard I held Cade Cunningham and Jalen Green when I did this exercise last year. Now, my tier one has shifted a little bit. Two names have actually jumped up into that tier, and one name has fallen back a tier. So Cade Cunningham, I think he did more than enough last year to prove that he is certainly on a path to potentially living up to the billing that I give a tier one prospect. The other two... I know you're we're certainly very high on, on one of these guys. would be Evan Mobley has now jumped mm-hmm. into this tier. And Scotty Barnes also really jumped into the conversation, particularly in the second half of the year. And it's it. I know this was kind of like the rookie of the year ballot, these three names. But for guys to jump up a tier into a significant tier after just one year for me, that really speaks to how special I think they are as prospects and really the direction where the NBA is going, everything that you talked about, Chuck, at the, at the beginning of this podcast, when I talked about what, what one of my overarching themes was going to be for this episode and episodes to come, especially as we shift our focus to another draft class and another league year, it's this intersection of size, athleticism and skill being more important in my opinion than ever. And Evan Mobley and Scotty Barnes to join Kate Cunningham in that top tier. They have those things, but they're also just really, really, really smart basketball players. And they can just do things with their gifts and they know how to do things with their gifts that some of these other players, especially in, in this draft class, they, they just aren't able to do on the same kind of level, at least not yet. So that's, that's my top tier of, of 
Cade Cunningham, Evan Mobley, and Scotty Barnes. You said, uh, Chuck, your top tier only had one player in it. So why don't you tell me who that player is and explain your thinking behind that? Uh, the one player is Evan Mobley. Okay. And it's not, it's only because like first team all NBA is really, really, really hard to make. Yes. Like you, you basically need to be either an MVP candidate or you have to be um, the best player on like a 55 plus win team. That's what sort of gets you consideration for that slot. Yep. And um, I have the same top three as you. Okay. I have Mobley, uh, Cade Cunningham, and then Scotty Barnes. That's the order. But the reason I have Mobley is just a little bit above those other two is that Mobley, I think, most successfully hits that intersection that you're talking about, where he has exceptional size, exceptional athleticism, exceptional skill, and exceptional feel. He really hits all of those quadrants to me. And Cade and Scotty are both great, um, obviously, and I'm sure we'll get to them in yep. more detail here in a moment. But for Scotty, for example, I think that he almost, well, I think he probably did outperform expectations uh, on the offensive end which is great and helped him win rookie of the year. And I, if I, you know, I still retain a little bit of skepticism that that offense is going to just go on a, a very smooth curve upwards. I think there might be some years where the shooting isn't quite as good as it was this season. I think he shot like 30% from three or, or thereabouts. And, um, and if you are, a good offensive player. And we can talk about Scotty's very funky and effective offensive game. But if you are like merely good to very good and not great, then it's hard for you to really get in a first team all NBA conversation. You can get an all-star conversation pretty well. And I think Scotty will get in those relatively soon. But in terms of the real cream of the crop, I think your offensive game has to be a bit more brilliant. And I think Cades has still a chance to, and I really flip-flopped and having Kate in that first tier or not, but as um, I've said in the past, as, as others have said in the past, Cade is not really an overpowering athlete. He's um, not. Extremely high skill level. Uh, one probably, you know, given his role and everything else, the highest field player in this class, which is really, really saying something. And an exceptional shooter. And, you know, his fit with Jay and Ivy will be great. And I can't wait to see him and Ivy and Jalen Duran really grow together in Detroit. But again, you look at first team All-NBA and the amount of sort of good to very good but not great athletes who make that team you know, that list is very, very short. You're talking about Nikola Jokic, who's probably the most, the single most skilled seven footer either ever or since Wilt Chamberlain, <laughs> or you're talking about Devin Booker who shot efficiently from everywhere and is probably going to score, you know, 35,000 points in the NBA and played on a 65 win team. Like it's just, it's very, very, very hard to get there. So 
with Mobley, on the other hand, I see someone who could be a first-team all-defensive player and whose shot I still believe in. I think there are people who probably justifiably think that the ceiling on that shot is a little bit lower than I do. But while not shooting very well, Mobley was, I think, 70% from the line or even sub-70%, and he was 25% from three he still scored 15 a night because of how well he played around the rim while splitting a lot of that court time with another traditional big in Jared Allen. Like that offense really was not built to Mobley's strengths, even though Mobley is the most talented player on a good Cavs team. So if you imagine him getting an offense that really knows how to feature him a little bit more and gets him even easier touches around the rim, then I think you can start to see someone who's averaging, you know, in a good shooting year, maybe 25 a night while playing all defense level, you know, defense on the other side of the ball. And that's what I think starts to get you into a first team all NBA conversation. So that's why I have Mobley where I have him. Do you think he can reach a point similar to Anthony Davis where he is consistently pouring in 25 to 30 points per night because I everything you could say about the defense I'm going to 110% agree with you it's really it's it's some of that shooting and it's more of the development to his scoring attack that I think would push him more into the echelon of the potential MVP conversation and it pushes him because of the defense into a conversation where he could be a player, you know, seven, eight years from now, we're having conversations about could he win the MVP award and the defensive player of the year award at the same time. And those are, that's a conversation we reserve for Giannis Antetokounmpo pretty exclusively yeah. nowadays. And they're not the same type of player. Obviously Giannis is a much more powerful player than, than Evan is, but I see ways in which Evan could possibly enter herself into a similar air if everything goes right in his scoring development. So I'm, I'm assuming that that idea isn't really far-fetched in your line of thinking either. It's there's enough of a chance for it that I'm still very, very bullish. I think that he could have an offensive impact that is equal to Davis, but probably done in a different way Yeah, because Davis was a real like, face up and you know blow by player you know he could really do that where he would use his explosiveness to like really really finish and Evan is explosive but he's not quite as twitchy as AD was but I think that he is a better passer than Anthony Davis really ever was and there's a chance that um, his shooting touch is going to end up a little bit better Davis has been sort of an inconsistent shooter. And so if there's, again, if there's an area where I'm just wrong and this ranking is wrong, it's me being more <laughs> optimistic on Evan Mobley than maybe I should be. But I just think that his form looks very clean. There's yep. a little bit of a pause at the top, but it's not really a physical hitch. And if he gets a little bit stronger in his core, to where he's more consistently on balance and that little pause goes away, um, then I think that he could, you know, just based on shooting touch alone, um, 
get to those sorts of scoring numbers that would justify those sorts of conversations. So all three of these guys that, that you and I kind of have in this little top group per se between my tier one and your, your top two tiers, the, the real, the thing that really brings those three guys together is the feel and it's the passing ability. And I think it's, it's become so important that if you are one of these top ranked guys in the NBA, you need to not just be able to go out and get your own, like these three guys can do in, in different ways, but you need to be able to involve your, your teammates and really bring out the best of everyone else. And, and you talked about Evan Mobley in that comparison to Davis, where Davis hasn't exactly been that, that type of guy, but I would agree with you that Evan has been at certain points and can continue to be because he he's he's one of these guys who I, I guess in a way similarly to Davis, but not just not in the same exact way. They both grew up more as guards and then they they had these growth spurts and they ended up growing into their bodies in a certain way to where they embraced being different types of big men. But they grew up developing these guard skills and they still have them as bigs. And because they are these certain types of athletes, they've been able to retain those guard skills and retain that skill and put it to use in these bodies of theirs and really change the game and, and continue to shove the game of basketball in a direction that it's just going to keep going. And are these oversized players who are doing things that once upon a time, big men just didn't do these things as you and I know, and mm -hmm. now more so than ever, they, they continue to develop this level of skill and just push it in a new direction. And Scotty Barnes is, is very similar. Cade, Cade's obviously in a different class because he's a wing, but Scotty Barnes also is this big forward, this, this powerful player who has a handle and he can create things off the bounce and he can get to the basket um, vir virtually when he wants. He doesn't have, in my opinion, the same pull-up jump shooting that Evan does, although I think Scotty was even better at that in his rookie year than, than certainly I expected. Evan, Evan, I think, has a much cleaner path, in my opinion, to be a better jump shooter than Scotty Barnes. But Scotty Barnes has already taken steps to improve his shooting ability overall, which is, is really nice to see, um, given the other parts of his game that really bring it together for him. And then you have Cade Cunningham, who, you know, Chuck, Cade's, Cade's an interesting case because I think what he showed he could do in college and what he showed he could do last year at least on the offensive side of the ball. He's excelling more at the tougher parts of offense, and he's really struggled with some of the easier parts of offense. And maybe that does come back to some of his athletic limitations. Uh, maybe that comes back to just his familiarity with the game, and he's grown up practicing all these off-the-dribble jump shots, and he really wanted to make that more part of his offensive attack, and he sort of left uh, being more of an off-ball player behind because he's just – had to have the ball in his hand so much because of how good and how smart he is. It's, it, it's, it's interesting to really look at that as to where if, if Cade improves on some of the quote unquote easier parts of offense, and he marries that with what he can already do, which is he can create shots and, and hit tough shots at a high enough level to where we're projecting him on this path. It, it's really interesting to think about what player he could still become in the NBA. What are some of your thoughts about Cade Cunningham and what you saw in his rookie year? Well, I'm, I actually want to ask you, when you say easier parts of offense, what, what do you mean? What, what easier parts of offense do you feel like you, because I feel like I know what you mean, but I don't want to mischaracterize it. What, so what, what I would, do you mean by that? 
I would consider being a, a off the dribble shot maker and a tough shot maker, much more of a difficult ask at the NBA level than playing mm-hmm. off the ball, sitting in the corners, getting those catch and shoot looks, ah, um, running okay. along the baseline, cutting to the basket, doing those types of things and really being more of an off ball player than not only just an on ball playmaker, but an on ball shot maker of the highest order. And I feel like he's actually excelled at doing more of those things at least during his rookie year than being more of an off ball guy. But maybe that's just because he's had to operate with the ball in his hands almost exclusively for the majority of his playing career, at least like the last few years, certainly because he's just that more gifted of a playmaker, more of an offensive maestro than some of the other players he's been with on the same team. He kind of has to do a little bit more of everything and do those harder things because he hasn't been with somebody else who can really take up that mantle that that's more so what I mean. Okay, yeah, no, I agree 100% with that. And I, I have no qualms, concerns, skepticism at all about his ability to play off the ball and knock down those shots as soon as he basically plays with Jaden Ivey. Because Ivey's the guy who can get downhill and draw that attention mm-hmm. for him. Cade's way too smart, shoots way too well, um, processes the game way too quickly for that to be – for for playing off ball to be outside of his grasp. And so, you know, he averaged 17, five and five last year, um, which is just excellent. And he shot almost, I think he shot like 47% on twos. And, you know, one of the questions about him was how well he could create separation and how well he could create easy looks for himself in the half court, you know, one-on-one. And that still is a little bit of a question, but when you have touch good enough to still turn in numbers like that, you know, 47% from two, which is really not bad, especially given your supporting cast and doing it as a rookie with his amount of usage, uh, you know, it just, it tells you that you're dealing with someone who is a really, like you said, he's a really, really good shot maker and, you know, NBA offense is only going to get easier for him year over year as he as that team surrounds him with more talent. And I think you'll see that um, as soon as this year with him and Ivy. So there's going to be some year where, you know, maybe it's Cade's third year and it's Duran's second year or something. Or maybe it's Cade's fourth year and Duran's third year where the Pistons are going to go from like a 30 win team to a 50 win team because, Guys like Cade, whose habits are so clean and uh, whose understanding of the game is so advanced, mm-hmm. once that core gets used to playing together and can now execute its sets and its approaches you know, very crisply game after game and night after night, it's just going to be a winning formula that's hard to resist. And so... Yeah, I I think that Cade, especially the second half of his rookie year, showed a lot, but it's almost like that was just sort of like a teaser trailer for the player (laughs) to be once he has a a truly competent um, NBA caliber offense around him, which I think this year he's going to be pretty close to having. So speaking of teaser trailers, we'll, we'll hit on the last player in, in this grouping um, individually, and then we'll get into the, the next tier or two after that. Scotty Barnes, Chuck, he, what he showed last year might very well be a teaser trailer in and of itself as to how good he could potentially be 
down the road because you start to, to piece everything together of what he can do as a downhill driver with, with an improving post game that he's looking to go to. We know what kind of transition threat he is on offense. We know about all of the different ways he can impact the game defensively, both as a playmaker, as, as a rover, as a, as a helper, as, as an on-ball defender. If more of the jump shooting continues to come around for Scotty Barnes, Chuck, then, then we really look around the room and we say, well, what else, what else really can't this guy do? And those, those are the scariest types of players that we have in the NBA where we can point to the things that he needs to work on. But at the same time, we can also envision futures where those things actually do come around for him. And if they do, what else does he really need to prove on the court? And if he's a guy with his size and with his athletic ability, his feel for the game and, you really marry in that fourth part, a, a, a four-part marriage, which is what you talked about with Evan Mobley. Then we get to where we could be with Scotty Barnes. That's why I had to put him in this top tier. That That's the type of player that separates themselves where they can, they can figure out how to create so much for themselves, but also keep everybody else involved. And oh, by the way, they are one hell of a defensive player as well. So I know that you might be a little bit more of a skeptic on some of those shooting improvements for Scotty. Do you think they can come and will come in time? And if they do, does that change your perception about the race between him and Mobley possibly for that top spot on your board? Um, look, man, I don't want to be caught down talking Scotty at all. So like, <laughs> I, I won't say that there's no chance of it happening. Right. It's just that he, like, his game is inherently a little bit more off the dribble than Mobley's is because Mobley, you know, Mobley is such a good play finisher around the rim and he has so much length and height over everyone else on the court that it's easier for him to get very easy shots. You know, once he gets the ball in his mm-hmm. sweet spot, Scotty, has incredible length at seven three, but he's a little bit shorter than Mobley's, you know, six nine. Yep. So his jumper ends up being this like pretty long release and process, especially because shooting has not been his most natural skill. Yep. So if he's trying to operate off the ball, or pardon me, on the ball as a scorer, you know what you saw his rookie year was him finding all kinds of mismatches um, in the lane and in sort of the short mid range where he would get up these very twitchy, you know, push shots and floaters and half hooks and baby hooks and offensive rebounds and putbacks. Um, And he just, he, it was amazing how consistent he was at that stuff. But if he wants to build his game out into something that he, where he's like toying with defenders and really getting to sort of his bread and butter that can just go in night after night after night. I wonder, like, I would think he would need to quicken his release a little bit on his jumper. And I think that's going to be really hard for him to do just with his frame and the fact that he's not the most natural shooter, but look, man, I, what Scotty does more so even than Cade and Mobley to me is drive home the point that, you know, we've been discussing about positional size, like players like Scotty are why, even if the Knicks 
trade for Donovan Mitchell and should be really, and they should be excited about doing that. If that trade goes through, maybe it will have gone through by the time this episode posts. It's why even a really excited team with a really great player in Donovan Mitchell plays the Raptors and just goes, oh, shit. Cause Scotty, like <laughs> if, if, if Scotty is checking Mitchell, unless Donnie can like dust him and get by him, which, you know, he'll win his fair share of battles doing that. Scotty's still going to recover. He's still going to, you know, cream Mitchell, you know, getting out of the way for rebounds. He's going to hunt Mitchell on the other end and back him down over yep. and over and over. He's going to bother him with length, either um, on the ball or in recovery or coming off the weak side. It's just a lot to deal with. And Scotty imposed his physicality the best out of any rookie that I saw in this class. And that's a real skill to impose your physicality on both ends of the ball over and over again. You know, it takes a lot of focus and energy and will and talent to do that because you have to be intelligent with how you position your body and know, you know, when you have those advantages and those matchups and to do it as a 19, 20 year old kid in the playoffs, which is what Scotty did. <laughs> is just really hard to do. And so when you hear the old cliche about like players who have no off switch and who are just like nightmares to play on like a back to back in February, because the other team's like, Oh man, like I can't, I just can't match this level of physicality and energy and effort. Scotty's that way, like all of the time, no matter what the stage is or um, what the context is. And so that is that gives him such a high floor. It gives him such a degree of sort of undeniable value to his team that any other skill development that he has is to me almost just like gravy. It's almost like house money because it's he is more or less guaranteed in spite of questionable shooting to be a very positive NBA player. And that's when you know that you have a real talent on your hands. When you are not reliant on the ball going in the hoop and like we can, Cade is brilliant, but he needs his jumper to fall. Scotty does. Scotty can put, can score at just sort of an average rate and still be monstrously valuable to really good teams deep in the playoffs. And that's what makes him so dangerous. So am I on the scale of sort of optimism regarding his, his jumper, I'm probably middle of the road or maybe even a little below average, but that's not to say I'm below average on his overall projection because he's, he is a very unique class of player who can thrive and succeed even in spite of like a mediocre shooting projection. In my opinion. I agree with everything you said. I do agree with, the mechanical point that you brought up regarding his jump shot, because when, when I talked about he, he showed more in the pull-up game than I thought he would. It was also more times than not, at least from what I feel like I saw on film where he would take the space in front of him, but he would take the space that the defense gave him. Mm -hmm. And when he took some of those pull-up shots, they wouldn't really play up to properly contested in the same way that like somebody would contest Kate Cunningham's shot, for example. And you just wonder, like, if more of those shots, at least that I saw in a film, would have been, you know, a little better contested, would have Scotty 
try to, to maybe rush through the mechanics or do something that's off kilter for him a little more and more of those shots wouldn't have gone in um, similar to what we would have seen in, in college should Scotty have attempted something like that. He definitely showed more of a comfort level to take those shots in the NBA, but they were, they, they weren't exactly the same level of pull-up jumper from a defensive standpoint as somebody like coming on Garden Kate, for example. So that's, that, mm-hmm. that's a reason why I think that he will have to do one or two things to tighten up his mechanics, get a little quicker on the release for those situations. Cause eventually just given where we talk about the league's going, somebody's going to be able to properly come out and contest that jumper and not let Scotty just absolutely blow through him and, and get by him every single time. Right. He Scotty's going to have to make some tough jump shots at some point if he's really, one of these top tier guys like you and I think that he is. That will be an interesting mm-hmm. development to watch with him. The one comment you just made Chuck about Cade needs his shot to fall to be his mm-hmm. highest level of effectiveness. The next guy who I'm going to pivot to, who would be in tier two, who I mentioned would have dropped out of my top tier would be Jalen green. If Jalen mm-hmm. green isn't doing what we know Jalen green can do on offense, then his case falls apart much quicker than the three guys that we just spent time talking about because he's not the same high level passer or decision maker on the ball for that matter. He's not the same, or at least could get to, in my opinion, as high of a level defensively as the three guys ahead of him. I still think Cade's actually going to get to a point where he becomes a really interesting defender on the wing in the NBA. Um, Jalen needs to be a really impressive offensive score for everything to truly click and for him to hit his ceiling. But at times when he's not doing that, his impact on the game falls off. I I'm curious where you're still at on, on year one or after year one, I should say of the Jalen green experience, Chuck. Cause I, I think I saw everything that I expected to see from him in year one. I, I think me moving him down slightly, I think it's more so just the nod to, who those other guys are likely to be in their NBA careers more so than I thought Jalen did anything wrong during his rookie year. Where, where are you at on Jalen Green? Uh, he's my next player. And my tier two is Cade, Barnes, Green, and Franz Wagner. So okay, it's, it's so we're, we're in a very, very similar spot with like our top five names, if we want to call it. And yeah, and so I like, you know, Jalen Green, and if and if Mobley's jumper never arrives, like I think it can, Green could be the best player in this draft. You know, Green is a class of player that I think I it's hard to say if like everyone underrates him, but I I certainly feel like there is a a vocal portion of draft evaluators who underrate guys like this a lot. Yes. And it's um I, I think it's another reason Jaden Ivey was underrated and why I thought it was strange that he was, you know, considered by so many people to be the no doubt fourth best prospect in this class. I, I finished with him third, but green more than Scotty, more than Mobley and more than Cade uh, creates easy offense off the dribble. He, he's the best in this class at doing that creates easy shots for himself off the dribble better than anyone. And that is usually the formula for finding the best player in the draft. You, if you can find that guy, the guy who consistently creates the easiest looks off the dribble, that means you find the guy who collapses defenses the most consistently, puts defenses in rotation. 
creates passing windows for teammates. And I think frequently draft evaluators can focus on the, um, the, the quality of passes that players throw rather than the quality of passing windows that players open a little bit. And guys like Green and Ivy create high, 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 high quality passing windows. And that's what I think, that's what I kind of gravitate toward. Because I think if you play NBA basketball, high minute NBA basketball for three or four or five years, you have the ball in your hands, you'll hit those passes. You'll get through those windows. What is hard to replicate is generating the windows in the first place. And so um, Green does that. And you saw that, especially again, the second half of the year in Houston. It's another guy who didn't have an ideal circumstance last year specifically because there's juggling. Are we really developing him alongside Kevin Porter Jr.? What are we asking him to do in relation to Kevin Porter Jr.? You know, what kind of touches are we getting Shen Gun? You know, it was really sort of like a teaser trailer kind of year, the same way it was for Cade in Detroit. That that team last year doesn't really resemble the team that's really going to be around Jalen Green during his most important years as a Rocket. Um, that team looks different and more promising now. You know, we don't need to get into their 2022 draft, but, you know, Jalen Green has a lot more to play with now. And yep. so... Um, I think that, yes, his jumper does need to fall, but as someone who's going to get to the rim as easily as, as Green is and who's going to you know draw fouls pretty easily, that's another characteristic of the player who creates the easiest look off the dribble in any given draft class, I think his offensive floor is just very, 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 very high. And if you hear me talking about high floors like this, that's not to suggest low ceiling. It's quite the opposite. It's sure. just... If, if I know you're going to be good at important stuff in the NBA, then it becomes easier to become great at important stuff in the NBA. And so green is going to be very good at that sort of most important dimension to offense. And so I think the future in front of, in front of him is very, very bright. I did not see a whole lot um, in his rookie year to really detract any, optimism it's just scotty turned out to be such a unique <laughs> player that like i still don't really know if is three the right spot for scotty is seven the right spot for him like there's just he has no analog that i can readily point to in other draft years and so right now i'm really optimistic on him and that dropped jalen from three to four but it's not any any shade on Jalen. If anything, I'm more optimistic on him than I was last year, and I had him third overall last year. So, yeah, Jalen's great. I, I agree with you 100%. We're, we're in the same boat that it's not it's not any sort of slight towards Jalen. It's more so, to, to me, the surprise and the intrigue of some of the other guys that, that you and I would have put ahead of him I love the comment you made about um, the passing windows and the creation of said windows. And it comes back to the, the point that I, I said, it's going to be the overarching theme of the podcast. It's if you don't have this plus positional size or length, but you have the game breaking, potentially game breaking athletic traits. Now we're, we're, we're still in this, you know, you can be a, a potentially top tier or, or close to it 
player in the NBA. Jalen Green does have those athletic traits and you see them, you see them on the ball. You're starting to see more of it out of the pick and roll when he gets that screen at the top. He was a much, much improved pick and roll scorer and to an extent a playmaker for Murray was game one versus um, towards the end of the season for the Houston Rockets. You see it off the ball. His, his cutting it, Chuck is, is freaking ridiculous. He is, he is already a really good cutter and it's because of he is, he is just quicker than anybody else. And if you don't account for him having being able to create that window, that back door to the basket, if you don't account for it. He will get there before he will already be scoring the basketball before you could even possibly think about recovering. If you don't account mm-hmm. for it, it it's, it's pretty wild to, to watch some of the off ball film with Jalen Green. Then obviously his shooting ability. I mean, he, he has ridiculous range on his three point shot. He's very comfortable getting into those step backs. I think the next evolution for his offensive game, besides some of just making better decisions and moving the ball, I think will be to tap into more of his mid range game right now. He he's kind of like a, I would consider him like a one and a half level scorer and that I'm not sure he's even at his, his full level and finishing around the basket. I think more of that will come as he continues to add to his body and get stronger. We know what he can do with the three ball. And then the mid range, I do think needs some work, but he, he still has a clear path in my opinion, to becoming a three level scorer in the NBA, which at the NBA level, that that's really, really, really hard to do. I think you and I would both hammer home that point incredibly well. Um, you mentioned that Franz was your next guy on the list. He's also the, the, the next guy on my list. And he, he had a much better season in Orlando than, than I think I could have possibly imagined. And before the draft, uh, people were trying to ask me what, what could be like a ceiling for, for Franz. Cause I had him, I had, I didn't do like numbered rankings within the tiers during this draft class, but like if I would have tried to attach some sort of number to him, he would have been in my top 10 before the draft, probably towards the back end of the top 10, but he would have been inside the top 10. People tried to ask me what, what could a ceiling be for Franz Wagner? I was like, maybe if he hits like his apex, right? Maybe we can look at him as being this, this Gordon Hayward type of wing. Sure. You watch him last year and I'm like, Oh my God. Like there, there actually might be a more realistic world that, that I initially pictured to where he could become that level of wing. And I don't, I don't want to downplay when I say that, because I think some people forget that like when Gordon Hayward was at the peak of his powers before a lot of this, this bad injury luck happened, like he was a top five small forward in the NBA and being oh, top he's a, five he's in a, a position. Absolute beast. Yeah. <laughs> You're like being top five in any positional category in the NBA is that that's that is an incredible compliment to give anybody. So the fact that I could mention Franz could be in a conversation like that, that's that's really, really high praise coming from me. What, what were your thoughts about Franz and his rookie year? Did anything he did last year or showed to surprise you at all? Or was it more of what, what you thought, what you expected to happen when he was coming into the NBA? Oh yeah, it certainly surprised me, but I was just I was a dummy, you know. Like <laughs> I mean, like Franz um I I think that if I had known if I had researched Franz's pre-Michigan career more heavily, then I would have been a bit more optimistic on him. I I had him 12th in at the back of a tier that went from 7 to 12. And I should have just had him 7th. I mean, that's sure. where I should have put him. But um, even that would have been too low as evidenced by where we have him now. I just, I didn't see him being so aggressive off the dribble 
I knew that he was a good driver and like a, a pretty good finisher, but I didn't see him um, using his dribble to get into his shot and doing these sort of step backs and sidestep threes. Yep. And, you know, driving <clears throat> with so much aggression, possession after possession after possession. Um, that's what surprised me is just how, how much he embraced that offensive usage right away. Uh, because I thought that he was, though he was a very good offensive player at Michigan, I thought his primary selling point as an NBA prospect was his defense, not his offense. Um, and now, though, again, I think he's a, a good defensive prospect and going to be a good defensive NBA player. I feel the opposite that like his meal ticket is his shooting and his offensive mind and his scoring ability. And I think Hayward is the right that's the right vein to sort of be looking in. I think if anything, Hayward actually was probably even a bit more of a talented shooter than Franz was. And, Franz... and, and just, just like a different, I think they're on different levels athletically too, which is why I didn't want to use that as like a clean one for one comp, but in terms of overall impact, I, I, I appreciate that you would agree. That's, that's the type of path we would want to go down for Franz. Yes, I actually, and if anything, I think Franz maybe processes the game a little bit more quickly than Gordon did. And then again, that's not a slight on Gordon. No, from a passing standpoint, but, I agree with you 100%. That that part of his game also sort of surprised me, along with the the, the pull up scoring and to be able to separate and create clean shots off the off the bounce in the mid range. And and though he isn't as twitchy as Jalen Green, I think as an off ball player, Franz is similarly similarly formidable. Because he's he has so much length and he he can cut so decisively that he's gonna really be able to finish around the rim against just about anyone, all but the very best rim protectors, if he has, for example, Palo Bencaro setting him up. So um the reason that I feel as strongly about Franz in tier two, where I think he could make multiple all-star games. Um, is that real two-way ability? Is that you know two-way wings at six ten, who can score twenty points a night, which is where I think Franz is headed, sooner rather than later. Um, that you just you can count them on one hand, the the players who fit that description, and that's really it. He's another guy who, like Cade, his shot needs to go in for him to really um, reach his ceiling. And I know again we keep saying that, but. It's just for non-elite athletes, you really got to be able to shoot. And Franz and Kate are both very good, but they're not quite elite athletes. And so the ball has to go in. But, I, you know, both those guys shot 85% from the line as, you know, rookie big wings at 20 years old. Mm -hmm. So I think their shot is going to continue to go in. And so that's why um, I've got them where I got them. If you can imagine a two-way wing who can play off the dribble and score 20 a night, at 610 then not only could every team use that but that's those are players who you know that's what Jason Tatum is he's an extreme version of it but that's who he is so yeah is is the quote unquote sixth guy on your list Trey Murphy correct he is how did you know <laughs> yes he is so who so my my quote unquote sixth guy in this exercise the last guy in my tier 2 player number six would be would actually be that this was this was a surprise to me when I sat down and I, I was doing this exercise but especially after not only what I saw rookie year but also what I just got back from seeing in summer league Josh Giddy is actually my 
six mm-hmm. guy. It, sure. it, 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 it shocks me. But who, who do you want to talk about first? You want to talk about Trey first? You want to talk about Josh? Well, why don't you list out your tier and then I'll list out my tier and then we can see who we want to highlight personally. Oh, let's do it. So tier, yeah. so tier, you, you want to just go through tier three? Yeah, yeah, just let's list them all out. Yeah. All right. So I, I mentioned Josh Gady was at the back end of my tier two, my tier three, which is really the next group of guys we're getting into. I have Jalen Suggs. Mm-hmm. I have Alper and Shengun. I have Jalen mm-hmm. Johnson still in there. I still believe. I know you still mm-hmm. believe as well. Um, mm-hmm. I have Isaiah Jackson in this category. I have Jonathan Kuminga and Moses Moody in this group. Those are guys who I already had as, as like tier three from last year, right? Now we get into some guys in this group that I actually, I moved up and a few of them, I moved up significantly. So Ayo mm-hmm. Desumu moves into this category. Cam Thomas moves into this category. Chris Duarte, Joshua Primo's in the fold. It, this is not, I don't have numbers attached to these guys. So when I say Trey Murphy right here, I'm not, not trying to hurt your feelings, Chuck. Don't worry. I like, I like Trey very much. Um, <laughs> Zaire Williams is in this group. And then the guys who made the biggest leaps for me into tier three are Quentin Grimes and Herb Jones. They made yep. significant leaps and boy, I, I know we're going to talk about some of those guys in the back end as well, but that that's my real next group of guys. So who's your next prop? Uh, you named all of them, but my tier is smaller than yours. So you okay. included some guys who are in my tier four. So my tier sure. three, Trey Murphy, Jalen Suggs, uh, Josh Giddy, Herb Jones, Moses Moody, Isaiah Jackson, Jonathan Kuminga. And that's, that's who I have in tier three, because these, this is again, something that this draft had that is so unique, which is to have, you know, really a lotto's worth of prospects who I think have it in them to make an all-star team. Not all of them will, but I think that there is an all-star path for, you know, 12 players in this draft, which is insane. And that, that is who that's that class. And then the next tier includes a lot of guys that you mentioned, uh, Shen Gunn, Zaire Williams, Bones Highland, Cam Thomas, Quentin Grimes, Io, uh, Davion Mitchell, Jalen Johnson, Duarte, my guy Usman Garuba, and then probably the most aggressive placement in there is BJ Boston. But that's the tier four. Tier three, where I believe the seven I made, I named Trey, Suggs, Giddy Herb, Moody, Isaiah Jackson, and Kaminga. Okay, so let's. Let's let's talk about Trey Murphy since he's he's the next guy on your list and he's very much so in this tier for me. Um, mm-hmm. As I mentioned when I first started out, the physical development, the the leap that he's taken body wise going into year two, I think is much more than I could have possibly expected. We we knew about the shooting ability coming into the NBA and he really flashed some of that shooting ability, especially at the end of last year and and even in some playoff games, he was hitting some big jump shots for the new Orleans Pelicans. But if he's ready to take that next step physically, where he's much more of an aggressive player getting downhill and finishing around the basket, and he's not almost exclusively just a a floor spacer and a three point shooter. Now I think we're starting to realize the ceiling that you thought really was there all along. Cause you, you, when we talked about Trey Murphy before last year's draft, you really thought there was more in there to be tapped into as far as an overall scoring package, not just him becoming a, a good to great shooter 
in the NBA. So I'm assuming that, that you are, you are ready to buy into big Trey Murphy and see him unlock more of the potential you thought was always there. Absolutely. And I, I actually don't know that it's going to happen this year, even though it's summer league, you notice sort of the physical difference uh, mm-hmm. just because the, I think the Pelicans are just that stacked and, you know, they have so many guys who can play on the ball already in CJ and Zion and in Brandon Ingram um, that Trey is still going to very much sort of star in his role on that team, which is still going to be uh, basically a play finisher, whether finishing plays are in knocking down jumpers or in, you know, cramming around the rim. But in terms of where his his skill set and his career will take him beyond this year, yeah, I mean it, we it, we've been talking about it a lot, but there's there's wings and then there's big wings and then there are the Franz and Trey Murphy sized wings where <laughs> these guys are legitimately six foot ten, especially in shoes. They're a, they're a legit six ten. And they are high, high level shooters. And I think it's just sort of a pure shooter, pure catch and shoot shooter, you know, movement shooter, whatever. Um, Trey is right up there with Franz and Cade as the, the best in this class. And he is explosive enough as an athlete and moves well enough as an athlete that he can, number one, he projects to be, I think, a a very solid, if not very, very good wing defender, you know, a guy with length and uh, strength to bother lots of different kinds of good NBA offensive players. And someone who, as long as he's playing with one other, or in his case, you know, two other stars or two and a half other stars, he'll be able to just dominate the windows, the scoring windows that have been created for him, whether that's attacking a closeout off the dribble or running a secondary pick and roll or knocking down open jumpers. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, Chris Middleton is a guy who is not as big as Trey, but who is a similar, you know, just expert, expert world-class shooter who got better and better and better and better over the course of his career, honing his pull up to the point where he became an all-star playing on a great team. Now, if Chris Middleton were on a seven seed, he probably wouldn't be an all-star, but he he's in the right context sure. to where you see how valuable his skill set is, how much of like a ceiling raising package it can be to a great team. And he becomes an all-star. I see a similar situation with Trey where he on this Pelicans team or whether or not they make some consolidation trade, he ends up playing with some other star somewhere else. I hope not, but you know, those things do happen. But if he plays in a lineup with Zion and Brandon Ingram and Herb Jones, and those are four of your five, then his spacing will be so important and his scoring windows will be so, uh, you know, big and advantageous for him that I could see him averaging over 20 a night playing very good defense on the way. It's just, it, that's what positional size and athleticism gets you, you know? And that's, that's why I think I look at everyone else, compare him, for example, to Jonathan Kuminga, who is a better pure athlete yep. than Trey, more of a power athlete. Um, 
and who's in a really good system himself in Golden State, but like the ball just has to go in the hoop. (laughs) At some point you are how threatening your offensive game is. And Kuminga's highlights are, are breathtaking, but if he never projects to be an above average shooter. Yeah. He, he doesn't, he doesn't do it and he will put up really impressive scoring totals at times, but it's, it's done in a completely different way than Trey Murphy can do it. And because Trey Murphy can do it in that specific way, I think his game just scales and it just projects better in so many different situations, especially in the playoffs in in certain aspects than Kaminga, even though Kaminga is this breathtaking athlete, but right now he projects more as like a small ball big versus Trey Murphy being able to operate as well as he can out on the wing because he can just shoot the piss out of the ball. That's exactly right. Like, and, and you know, I, I won't belabor it because I think it is a relatively simple point, but you know, sometimes the simple answer and oftentimes the simple answer is the best one. Like if you, if you're a world-class shooter and you can play on the wing, then you're just going to be more and more and more valuable as your career goes along. And so that's, that's what I think about track. So I, I agree with everything you said. And I, I love, and at, at some point last year, I, I, I did not get quite as high as you were on Trey Murphy, but I certainly came around to a point where I'm like, should he really be like a lottery pick? And yeah, the Pelicans are, the Pelicans are loaded and I'm not even going to rule out that Trey, he, he won't start on this Pelicans team. The starting lineup is, is that loaded with veterans, but I, I think there's a good chance he could end up playing like, I don't know, like low level starter minutes at, at, at some point next year. Like if he gets to like the, the, the 25 to, to 27 minute per game, mark and maybe he's involved in some in, in some closing action and he becomes one of those guys i, I don't know i i, yeah, I feel yeah. like he he can there's definitely a, a a ceiling to where he's playing more than than like 18 minutes a night because he's that, oh of course yeah no. he's, that he, he's not one of their starting five but he's one of their five most important players that yes. clearly to me but yeah yeah so so josh giddy was the other guy he was my next man up and yep he he may end up being the guy who I regret being the lowest on the most from last year. Cause again, I didn't attach a number ranking to him, but I had him as a tier three guy, but even though I had him in tier three with, with a, a group of, of good players, like when, when I did a mock draft, for example, when I did my GM style mock draft, I had Josh Giddy going uh, closer, certainly closer to 20, then I think I, I think I even took him in the twenties. Then then I had him going sixth overall to the Oklahoma City Thunder, and boy was I wrong about that because even though he has a number of things he can work on from a scoring perspective, and he needs to become more of a consistent outside shooter, I I underestimated still how this guy can just get downhill and 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 get somebody on his hip and and. The, the passing angles he can create, the hit-aheads, the, the passing is just absolutely freaking ridiculous. It's it's way more ridiculous than I thought it was going to be. And if he becomes more of a scoring threat, at, at the very least around the basket, which he, seem, it's, he seems, at least in, in this summer league stretch, seems like he's going to be able to take a reasonable step in that direction as he heads mm-hmm. into year two in the NBA. Boy, his, his ceiling becomes 
a lot higher than, than I thought it was. Like I, I really didn't think at least I, I didn't think he'd be this, this legitimate all the time on the ball point guard. Like he's just going to be in the NBA. I, I thought he was more of in, in the Joe Ingles mode. And, and, and he, he is clearly more the, the, the Joe Ingles. And that's why he has shot up my, my retier in such a significant way to where I think he can be an all-star. I think he could potentially be a multi-time all-star. Um, where, where are you at with Josh Giddy? Right about the same place. I mean, I, I loved Giddy last year and um, he, I was, I was less surprised by his play um, in Oklahoma city, because if you have that sort of facility with the ball again, and Giddy is six, eight, six, nine, um, and you're that young, then it's very, very rare for those types of talents to like not be excellent NBA players. Um, I think with Giddy, the one interesting part of his evaluation sort of going forward is that like, he is clearly one of the 10 best players in this draft. And I think someone could Mm -hmm. be justified probably having him as high as five, maybe even four. Mm -hmm. Um, but he, you know, shooting is his biggest question offensively. And, you know, we've mentioned guys like Barnes and green who can really flourish in spite of, uh, or maybe I, I mean, Jalen green's an excellent shooter, but like they aren't overly, overly reliant on their jumper because their athleticism confers them so many advantages. Giddy is his size and sort of his physicality do confer him advantages, but he's not like a crazy explosive athlete in his own right. And he's not a great defensive prospect in, you know, really at all. And so when you take away, if you say he's sort of an average to below average defensive prospect and he's a below average shooting prospect, it becomes, there's a question as to how scalable that's ultimately going to be. How many different winning environments can that really flourish in? Um, And I think that's a fair question to ask of him. The the easy retort though, is that Giddy, you know, Giddy's not going to be 20 until November. Like that's how young he is. He's 19 and a half years old. So I think you just take his unbelievable playmaking vision and like as good as Kate is, I think Giddy is the best passer in this draft class. Oh, it's not even, it's the, in my opinion, it's not even a debate between. Sure. And, and you take his size and uh, his fearlessness and the fact that he is, he's a willing scorer of the ball. The efficiency isn't there yet, but like he does look for his own shot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you just see where it takes you. And maybe that shooting does come along and, you know, maybe he does become um, a, a very clever and like physical finisher around the hoop. Like there's still ways for him to make leaps in his game. I, uh, but I will confess that like with someone like Trey or Franz, um, to say nothing of the guys I have above those two, the scalability portion of it does weigh in my mind. Like I can yep. see those two playing alongside other stars a bit more cleanly than I do Giddy, but he's still a brilliant player. So you chose 
you chose all of the right negatives to, to highlight about Giddy's game. <laughs> you, you, you definitely did. What, what's crazy to me, though, is I, I obviously agree with all of them. Yet the only thing is you mentioned the, the, the winning portion. Chuck, he, I, I, again, I, I know. I know it's just summer league. I know. But <laughs> we're, we're watching him out there in these summer league games with his Oklahoma City Thunder team. And the looks that he's creating, the advantages – that he's creating for his teammates because of his absolutely ridiculous passing ability. He makes me think that this Oklahoma city thunder summer league team could like be, be above 500 and during, during like a regular NBA season like that. That's how ridiculous it looks sometimes on the court. And it's not to say we didn't see any of that during his rookie season because we did, we did see some of that during his rookie season. And that's why he was an all rookie performer. But the fact that, he just, despite the negatives, right, how good he makes the game look at times for his teammates, how easy he makes it for everybody else. That's why I think I'm higher, and I ended up being higher on him. It's, 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 it's crazy that we can list off all those negatives, and yet he's still this, this damn good. It, it's it's yeah. absolutely incredible. He um, like, um, yeah, like Scotty, you know, not a ton of analogs for Josh Giddy. No. <laughs> you know, and that's a good thing. It's a good thing when you can't find it, you know. But, isn't isn't that usually one one of the better indicators for the these really high level guys is when we haven't really seen it before? I understand that it can be scary for some talent evaluators that if they can't point to a certain comp, they don't want to believe in it. But usually, when we see these like re, I, I'm talking like really rare guys that doesn't it usually end up working out in a good way? I feel like it does. As long as they contribute to winning, then then yeah, and. Yeah, I think Giddy, obviously, if he's this good, this young, then yes, he's going to eventually do that. Yeah. All right. So we're, we're going to move a little quicker through some of those names, but certainly in these, in these tiers, <laughs> there are some names, there are some names that I, that I absolutely want to take time to hit on. Just, you mentioned both of the Golden State guys, you mentioned Kaminga and you mentioned Moody. If yeah. I pose the question to you, which of those two would you rather have? Which one of those two would you rather have? Moody. Why would you rather have Moody? Uh, it's the same thing we've been talking about with scalability. You know, if Kuminga could pass like Josh Giddy, I would take Kuminga, but Moody can shoot and he is extremely self-aware about what his role can be on a winning team. And I, I'm not saying that to, to knock Kuminga. I just think that Moody has very special awareness of what it means to star in your role and to succeed in your role. And to be a part of a winning culture because he, you know, he played in high school with Barnes and Cade Cunningham and played off of those guys and has consistently said in his time at Golden State, like, I need to play within the system. I need to take to the system and play off of Steph. And he would speak very, um, very wisely about understanding the gravity that Steph creates and how he can fit in and amplify that and succeed off of that himself. And, you know, Moody's a really, really, really good shooter. I think he shot whatever it was, like th maybe 36% from three in his lone year at Arkansas on really, really high volume and like 83% from the line. And mm -hmm. he's a six, seven wing. He's a, he's a dribble pass shoot wing. Not in Kaminga's league uh, as an athlete, but someone who, who really understands the game and understands that as a role player, you need to make your decisions very, very fast. You need to be very decisive. 
And Moody is so decisive because he is sort of a step ahead of, as to how possessions unfold and to where rotations are going to be coming from that um, he's rarely like he can survive like on like in playoff games for quarters like he did for the Warriors, you know, in route to their title. And so I think there's he's just a smoother fit in more situations than Kuminga is. And Kaminga's awesome. Like I have him as a, you know, whatever I have him, 12th or 11th or 10th mm-hmm. in this draft, this little exercise. Kaminga's great, but you know, he he sort of needs the ball. He needs to be involved with ball actions in order um, for him to be a positive, effective offensive player. Um, and I would just rather have the guy who I think projects to shoot much, much better. And that's Kuminga, considering Kuminga, or pardon me, Moody, considering Moody still has the wing size. Um, Kuminga has better defensive tools, might end up being a better defensive player, but I don't think that is as important as sort of the spacing and offensive ceiling raising that I think Moody's got. I would I would agree with you on that standpoint. I think Kuminga succeeds offensively the way that he does in in large part because of the situation that he's in. And I think it's easier to see Moody succeeding in a number of other situations, um, more, more situations, at least on the offensive side of the ball than, than Kuminga. So I understand the Moses Moody argument 100%. I I skated past Jalen Suggs and then an opera and Shengun. I feel like we, we talked about those guys to death during the, the draft cycle. And I feel like in my opinion, I think both of them are, starters in the NBA and I think the conversations around those two just whenever you see discourse about them on social media it it always turns negative somehow and I I I don't want to have any negative conversation about those guys that's why I I skirted past them a little bit um one name that I did throw into this before I get to the two who most drastically rose up my my retear I moved Cam Thomas into this tier three and you and I had some interesting conversations about him before mm-hmm. last year's draft where I'm at on, with, with cam Thomas is I, I, I get all of the selfish things you can say about his offensive game. I understand all the things that one could point out about his defensive shortcomings. However, I think he's just going to get to a point in his career where he has become good enough around the margins and some of those other areas to where the offensive scoring impact, it, it's just too much to not have him in your starting lineup. I think he is that good offensively. Like you can, you, you can do whatever you want seemingly against this guy defensively. And he just doesn't care. He just doesn't give a fuck. He's just, he's still going to go out there and score, you know, 20, 25 plus points. And that's, that's just kind of how I feel about the situation. I think as he grows more into his career, he's just going to become, he's going to become good enough in some of those other areas to where the offensive impacts just too great to, to leave him off the floor. Um, have any, had any of your opinions changed uh, on Cam Thomas as we had in the year two? Not really. Uh, I had Cam 10th liar, loved him for the reasons that you said. Um, my only real question is whether like NBA offenses are so good nowadays that Cam is another guy who, though he can play on or off the ball, 
his he's at his most powerful with the ball in his hands because he's yep. so good at drawing free throws. So you do if if you are getting the best out of him, the offense is kind of necessarily in his hands. And it's not that I don't think he can run a good NBA offense because I think at least for like large stretches of games, he can. It's more about which NBA team is really going to give him that runway and that chance. Um, Because, you know, he's in Brooklyn right now. Kyrie Irving's still on that team. If Cam were to get traded or something like that, you know, name a team that you think, name whatever team you think would have the most room for him to experiment and really take the reins. And you'll find that he's probably with some other blue chip guard who wants to do that in their own right. If he Mm -hmm. goes to Oklahoma City, there's Gideon Shea. If he goes Mm -hmm. to Sacramento, there's De'Aaron Fox. If he goes to New York, there's Jalen Brunson and possibly imminently, you know, Donovan Mitchell. There just there aren't as many slots for on ball guys to grow into big offensive options as there's as it seems, especially ones who aren't wing size. So that's my only that's my concern is like, let's get Seattle and Vegas up and running so Cam <laughs> can have his own team like that. It's more of that than anything else. Well, who knows if, if all this stuff goes down in Brooklyn and he's somehow not involved in any of these packages going out the door, maybe may, maybe he gets those opportunities maybe. in Brooklyn still. Who knows? Yeah, um, maybe. The two guys that I mentioned who really shot up and and when i say shot up i mean i i considered these guys bench players but before last year's draft and now they both seemingly appear to be um if they aren't already long-term starters as herb jones i feel like he's going to be for whatever iteration of the pelicans roster that we see with or without a possible kevin durant trade then i had quentin grimes also certainly looks like he's he can be on that path i mean he's He's, he's had the, as good of a summer league explosion as we could have expected. And as we've seen out of any of these year two guys, and he was a guy who I, I saw what a starter outcome could look like for him, but he, he just appears to be like one of these players. Look, there are going to be a number of NBA teams who eventually try and be like, how can we pry away a piece like Quentin Grimes? And mm-hmm. we hear all these reports about Utah. And Utah apparently wants Quentin Grimes more than they want Emmanuel Quickly and Obi Toppin. That's according to some of the reports. And so we, we already see Trader Danny wanting in on some of the Quentin Grimes action. Um, those two really stood out to me for, for that reason. I, I didn't project them to be where they are right now, possibly at, at, at any point in their careers for, for different reasons. But out of those two guys, Chuck, who, who surprises you more that I would have jumped them up this much between Grimes and Herb Jones? Um, from where, from pre-draft analysis or from their performance this year? From pre-draft analysis to where I have them now, I had Quentin Grimes as a tier five guy and I had Herb Jones as a tier six. So the fact yeah, that I moved both yeah. of them up to tier three, who surprises you more that they made that high of a jump? probably herb you know going from okay. pre-draft i like i mean just because herb herb's story is just insane with, <laughs> you know, how much impact he had as a first-year player yep um and i really like both of these guys uh, but i am higher on herb because i think Herb, you know a fashionable thing to do with herb and trey murphy is to compare them 
you know, with Willie Green having come from Phoenix is to compare them to Mikhail Bridges and Cam Johnson, respectively. Two other wings who contributed to winning a lot as Phoenix rose into this powerhouse out West. Um, and I think, you know, I my feelings on Trey are, are well chronicled that I think he can be a better player than Cam Johnson. I also think that Herd can be a better player than Mikhail Bridges. And that might be like strange to hear, which is I, fair and understandable. Mikhail Bridges is awesome and, you know, was a first team all defense player. I think Herb, you know, as a rookie was very, I'll just put very close. I don't want to be any more offensive than very close <laughs> to having a better defensive season than Mikhail Bridges did this year. So, you know, Herb's a better athlete than Mikhail. I think pretty clearly Herb is crazy explosive as an athlete. The, the highlights of him blocking three point shots on recoveries are completely bonkers with his timing and everything else. Um, and I think that Mikhail is who he is, not only because of his defense, but because he's a very efficient shooter of the ball. Yes. So that's, I think that's really where I would, I, I would ask you the, the difference. Cause I, I don't disagree with you that Herb Jones could be possibly be a better defensive player than Mikhail Bridges, but I think where Bridges is now offensively from an impact standpoint, I have a tougher time thinking that Herb Jones is going to continue to improve to, to close that gap in a, in a meaningful way more so than like, I, I think that even if he does become a better defender than Mikhail, I don't think the difference between that is would be greater than the difference that I see between them right now offensively. So you must think that Herb can continue to do more to close that gap on the offensive side of the ball. It's yeah. I, so I'll be clear. I don't know that I would bet on her being better than Mikhail, sure. like as an overall player, but what, you know, Mikhail being such a great shooter and being in such a great environment for shooting, like we'll see what happens to him if he ends up playing for the Brooklyn Nets this year, yep. where he's not in such a, you know, euphoric offensive system. But Herb having the passing vision that he does, because Herb really does have some juice off the dribble. And, you know, that's something he even had at Alabama was the ability to, you know, find passing windows at six, eight and being a more explosive finisher around the hoop, which I think he is a little bit. Um, I could see him as he gets into his physical prime, mixing that with his just crazy athleticism at six, eight and being more of an off the dribble threat than Mikhail is. He probably won't ever touch Mikhail's skill as a movement shooter. And as, you know, just having overall touch, but if he's a better defensive player and then he's arguably more dangerous off the dribble, that's sort of where I'm thinking that there's a version of him that's better than Mikhail. But that's, you know, again, I am irresponsibly high on basically everyone in New Orleans Pelicans uniform. So maybe I'm just drinking the Kool-Aid a little too uh, passionately. But I just I think Herb is it, rookies don't defend that well. They just, they, they don't, they, they don't. Thank you. They, somebody else says that. Like, I feel like sometimes people have far too high of expectations for a rookie and even sophomore players to an extent on the defensive side of the ball. It's really, really hard to be that good of defense when you're just not as physically mature as the competition you're going up against 
every single night, let alone you being a young player, especially if you're a lottery pick coming in on a bad team that also probably isn't good defensively and you're a first or second year guy and you have to take the time to actually build the chemistry with everybody else. So not only do you have to learn how to defend yourself, but you also need to learn how to defend with everybody else around you. And that just, that just takes time. So there's just so many things that combat an NBA rookie or even a sophomore, depending on who you are to being good on the defensive side of the ball. So yes, I agree with you. That's a very high compliment. We can say that about somebody like her. Yeah. And I just, it's not as though, I think there's a tendency for players who are good at defense for someone to assume Oh, okay. Well then they're, they're solid. That's just sort of what they do. They're kind of close to their ceiling and you know, whatever. And I don't know, man, maybe that's true with Herb or maybe he's 22 and in five years, he's going to be a lot better than he is now. So I I'm just excited to see who that player is. That's all. So let me run through the, let me run through my tier four since you essentially ran through both your, your tiers three and four at the same time. So my tier four, this is much smaller than what it was pre-draft. I had 16 players in this group. I have literally cut that group in the half. I pushed mm-hmm. more players into what I would consider the, the, the starting of the bench category, like a seventh through ninth man. I have a lot more guys in my tier five. So my tier four, want you to listen carefully. I have Josh Christopher, Trey Mann, mm-hmm. Davion Mitchell, Bones Highland, Jared Butler. Then we get a little crazy. We I have Jeremiah Robinson Earl in here. Mm-hmm. I have Nemias Keita in here. Oh, let's does, go. Does, does, does that one put does that one put you in the back of your chair? A little bit. I literally just leaned back. <laughs> uh, but I like I like Nehemiah. I had him in my like top 40 here. So, yeah, and then I'm I had, and then I had, um, I had Jose Alvarado as the other guy, but yeah, Kada, talk, talk to me. What, what, what are your thoughts about Kada? Not that I brought him up as like a, as like a no, tier no, no. four you, kind you, of guy. You take the floor on him. He, you have him higher. You, you lead the way. So I put Kada in this group. Um, really, I, I, I know the, the, this is the one area, the one instance I think where I am possibly overreacting to what I've seen in summer league, Chuck, but I've, I've seen a guy who has legitimate size for a big man. He's strong. He's powerful to a certain extent. He's mobile. He can even take the ball and, and, and put it on the ground for a few dribbles and get to the basket. We're seeing mm-hmm. some improved shooting touch with him and he's improving as a rim protector. And I don't think he's 100% barbecue chicken on the perimeter as a true big man. So no, when you not, sort no. of when you sort of throw all of these ingredients into the pot for what we want a, a modern NBA big to be, he fits the bill. And maybe maybe he's not playing like thirty or thirty five minutes a, a night, but if I have him in a tier four as a big man, I have him in a in a category to where he can start games. I think at some point, and and maybe that that's only like twenty to twenty five minutes a night. He's ultimately playing, but I I still think he can get to a starter's level and he can play even whether it's he's playing that many minutes he's starting and he's coming out of the lineup or he's coming off the bench and still playing meaningful minutes for like a good NBA team like that that's the kind of big I actually think Kata can be and I think that's what more people expected him to be before he sort of tailed off a a little bit I guess as some would say at, at Utah State but I think he's really rounded into being what I think more teams are looking for in, in a cheap modern NBA big. So that that's why I put them up as high as a, as a tier four. What do you think? 
Yeah, I think that's a, a great placement for him. I think he's an interesting contrast with guys like um, Kai Jones and JT Thor. You know, those two. They Who have I have in a tier. I have them as tier five guys. I have them I have them in a tier below, but they're still in, in a conversation. Right. And I have them. I have them technically above Kata, but I completely understand ranking it the other way around. Because um, they're, they're on the same. They happen to be on the same team, but they are both very athletic tweener bigs who are projects in terms of how they are going to score efficiently. Like we've been talking about positional size a lot during this podcast, but like the reason we do that is for guys with guard skills. If you have guard skills, you just sort of need to be bigger and bigger and bigger in the NBA. If you already are big and you don't have tons of guard skills and Thor and Kai I think they like to experiment with that stuff, but they don't really have like. Oh, oh Kai's, Kai's been experimenting in summer league, brother, and it had that. <laughs> I don't know how well it's worked out for him, but he's he's yeah, been experimenting. Exactly. Like the point is, Kata knows he's a big. He yep. knows he's a center, and he knows that his route towards NBA efficiency is to you know finish around the hoop and do traditional big man stuff. Kai and Thor, um, intriguing as they are still don't know what lane really to take. Isaiah Todd would be another guy in this group. Um, They don't know what lane really to take in order to to become efficient players. Thor, I think, arguably has the cleanest route there, or maybe Todd does, Um, just because if you can shoot threes, then that's something, and that keeps you on the floor, and then maybe you build out from there. But that sort of uncertainty where your rawness or your quote unquote potential can be sort of a blessing and a curse um, that can cost you years in the league and your rookie contract can be over before you know it. And you have not carved out a productive role. Whereas a guy like Kata or another guy I have ranked very close to Kata, Jericho Sims, they know exactly who they are. They know the role that they fill. They already do it. Well, both were, either conference defensive player of the year or conference de- defensive player of the year quality in Sims case in the big 12, when he was at Texas, mm-hmm. you know, they have a baseline to build off of and will either one of those guys ever uh, sign for more than the mid level or more than 10 million a year. Maybe not, but they're going to get two or three contracts <laughs> in the NBA. And that makes sure. them a top 35 player in this draft class and a top 25 player in most draft classes. So yeah, I, I, I really like an aggressive placement on Kata. I think that's good. So why don't you run through your tier five and then to close out the podcast, I'll give you four names from my tier five that actually dropped down all the way from tier three. And, and we will try and be optimistic, more optimistic about, about somebody to close out the podcast on a high note. So why don't you run through your tier five first? Okay. So we've talked about some of them and you mentioned some of them already uh, yes. in your four. So I have Jeremiah Robinson, Earl, Trey Mann, Kai and JT Thor, Primo, uh, Daron Sharp, uh, who also fits in that big discussion a little bit. Yes. Then um, a couple other wings who don't quite have the efficiency or the ball skills or the potential of some others we've been talking about, but still good players. Kessler Edwards and Aaron Wiggins. Um, Jaden Springer. Yep. Jose Alvarado. 
Keon Johnson, you know, he and Springer yep. college teammates and sort of are of a piece in terms of NBA role. Um, I have Corey Kispert here, Jericho Sims, and then my last guy that I have included in here. I mean, although it, this is a very soft um, tier, I could include another 10 players, was uh, <laughs> Greg Brown the third. Okay. You were you chose to be a little more optimistic about Greg Brown. Greg Brown was a guy who I have in, in tier six, along with un, unfortunately, along with Isaiah Todd. He might have been too high of a of a swing for me. It's not that I don't want to still be optimistic about Todd. I just don't know other than the shooting, and the shooting can be spotty at best at certain points. I don't know what else he does at a high enough level to really play legitimate NBA minutes right now. And that that part of it concerns me but i still want to be i still want to be in on him so i'll yeah. run through i i think the old some of the names i didn't i don't think i heard from you as in a tier five i have isaiah livers in a tier I five him, i have him just below he's in that like next 10 that could have been included yeah i got and then i have some fun names i have austin reeves in here i have yep. i have david duke in here yep. i have sandro mamukalashvili in here <laughs> yeah and then uh-huh. to close out tier five, I would have Trenton Watford, Delano Band, and Santi Aldama, who was, man, that guy has really surprised me in summer league. Check. I, I, I didn't realize he could do this much um, off the bounce with, with, with the ball in his hands with some of what he's done for, for the Memphis Grizzlies summer league team. He's really yeah. surprised me. Yeah. Has Santi lost like 30 pounds? Yes. He like, he, yes. that is crazy to me. And he, I, he looks that, really I good out in- there. I have him in that next 10 as well, but like, and I have him above um, Watford and Banton and yeah, like very, I, I can't speak with any sort of authority on him because I haven't really paid attention to him since the 2021 draft cycle, but yeah, he has definitely turned heads in summer league. All right. So four names, we're going to close out this podcast on a high note, the last four, I shouldn't say the last four, really the first four names, I should say in my tier five, but these guys dropped not, not from tier four. They dropped from tier three where I had them pre-draft. So you mentioned Jane Springer. I have James mm-hmm. Booknight here mm-hmm. and then Kai Jones and Keon Johnson. So Springer, Booknight, Jones, and Johnson out of those four guys, Chuck, who should we be the most optimistic about to where they could possibly get back to jumping up a tier or two with, within the next few years? Ooh, Who can we great. end on a high note on? Great question. Great question. Kai Springer. So when I did this, Kai was ranked the highest because at okay. the end of the day, Kai is still the most athletically gifted though. Keon is a great athlete, but Keon is 6'4 and or 6'3, maybe even. And Kai is 6'10, 6'11. Um, and Kai is at his in his heart of hearts, he is a play finisher and he is playing with LaMelo Ball. Yep. So I would say Kai would be the best, but they each one of them has their own very unique case. Um, but yeah, I, we already touched on Kai a little bit. It's just that if, if Kai can figure out what to be great at first, I mean, that's what he needs to do. He needs to know what he can do at an NBA level over and over and over again. If he can find a role that suits him enough to where he can play 20 to 25 minutes a night consistently, then 
year over year, he can add other stuff to his game and eventually be like a hyper intriguing, incredible, like big wing athlete, like four or five finisher type. Someone who could be in conversation with like a Kaminga in terms of how they could affect the game. Um, it's just, it's, if it, it, that is a true high ceiling, low floor yep. prospect though. Cause he could also be out of the league in two years. So I don't know. It's just with Springer Johnson and book night, all of them are at a positional size disadvantage. You know, not only are they not big wings, but they, none of them are really on ball project to be on ball players, you know, book night Springer and Keon, all played on ball to varying degrees in college, but none of them are truly gifted enough as scorers and playmakers for an NBA team to entrust them with those kinds of reps. So they all need to be used to playing off other people. And if you, that's okay. But if you're playing, I want to, I want to stop you. I want to interrupt you really quick because you're about to get to a point. I was going to ask you actually some thoughts about Keon Johnson because he's actually looked really good. In summer yes, league for Portland. I agree. But this is this is what Corey brought up when we were doing one of our reactions episodes um, on the no ceilings feed when we were all out at summer league together. I talked about I wanted to be positive about what Keon Johnson showed, but Corey pointed out, yeah, but a lot of what he's done in summer league has been a lot of on-ball reps. And during during the course of an NBA regular season, if he is playing NBA minutes, he's probably going to be operating in more of an off-ball role so take what you're seeing at summer league with a grain of salt in terms of his role and the production he's having within a certain role that would probably be different within the context of an nba regular season i'm assuming you 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 agree with that or are you still encouraged with a lot of what you've seen i mean i think i i'm encouraged but yeah i agree i mean he's he's on a team with damian lillard and anthony simons and they just drafted shade and sharp you know Mm -hmm. where where are the reps going to come from Yep. So that's what I mean. Like you, you need to be really efficient at scoring the ball, especially the shorter you are on a basketball court. And that's the, uh, at some degree, that's the issue with Springer, Keon and book Knight, All of them is that all of them, you know, are, none of them are really plus shooters for being six, four. And you can find guys that height who are not plus shooters and carve out important roles Bruce Brown is one Gary Payton. Uh, the second is another, but first of all, you have to be unbelievable at defense. And at least for book night, that's not the case. Keon and Springer have more of a, more of a projectable road in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and both those guys kind of hit later on in their careers. Cause you have to, really find your way within an offense and you have to be extremely strong and Keon and book Knight are both on the skinnier side. Keon's a crazy <laughs> athlete, but he's not really built out. Springer is the one who probably has that sort of Peyton or Brownish build to him. Yep. And so maybe there is a, a readier path for him to fulfill that kind of a role, but that isn't, you know, you that kind of a player, a Bruce Brown, Gary Payton the second, you have to go find a top 10 offense to sort of catch on with and then hold down a role for. Because 
if you are going to be as sort of kind of non-threatening offensively as those two are, then you have to join a world-class offense already. That's why Bruce Brown is, you know, stuck by playing next to Kevin Durant and is now going to play with Nikola Jokic. That's why Gary Payton, Gary Payton stuck playing with Steph Curry and is now with Dame Lillard. Like you, you, the team that drafts you can't count on getting a lot of value out of you unless you have a world-class offense to begin with. And so that's sort of the challenge there. But I like all these guys to varying degrees. I love Springer in the draft. And so I think there's a good chance he eventually does make it. I just don't know it's gonna that it's gonna be for Philly. It just might be for another team. I yeah, I I, I think I would agree with that point. If it's going to happen for him, the the more the more I watch, the more I don't think it, it's going to be for Philly. But I'm glad that we could end on a high note with some points about Kai Jones and and Keon Johnson. I will not I will not talk about Jared Butler on this podcast. I'm in a little bit of a dark place with, with Jared right now. I don't, I don't want to hurt my feelings even more than they potentially already are. So we're, we're keeping the podcast ending on a high note, but Chuck, this was everything I expected it to be and more. You truly are one of the best in the business for a variety of reasons and couldn't be more grateful that you wanted to hop on and join me for this exercise. Plug, plug everything in her, Listen, if you're not listening to the Chuck and Darts by now at this point, and you've listened to, listened to enough of my podcast, what the hell are you doing? I don't, I don't even know what you'd be doing anymore at this point, but just plug everything you're doing one more time for the audience. Oh, thanks, man. Uh, at Chucking Darts, the Chucking Darts NBA and Draft podcast, wherever you get podcasts, that's where you can find mine. If you follow me on Twitter, that's I release my episodes. Nathan is usually kind enough to give me a retweet um, from the the powerful monolithic no ceilings collective. And so um, I'm going to try to be, to do more written stuff this year and this summer. Um, Love but it. yeah, just be on the lookout, just follow me and you'll, you'll find me, but thank I'll you be, much. I'll be one of the first to read anything written you do. So definitely please pump, pump out some of that written work. I will, I will absolutely share it everywhere I can. Um, but most importantly, thank you, everyone out there who has listened to this episode of the Draft Deeper podcast. If you aren't subscribed, make sure you do so wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube. Make sure you're following me on Twitter at Draft Deeper. And as Chuck mentioned, make sure you're following the No Ceilings Collective at No Ceilings NBA on Twitter. Subscribe to the Substack, NoCeilingsNBA.com, and subscribe to the No Ceilings NBA podcast wherever you get your podcasts, as well as the Draft Act with Corey and Albert. Make sure you subscribe to all three of our shows. We're going to continue to pump out more content throughout the entire offseason. I'm excited to do more content like this, dive into some more NBA topics until we get to 2023 draft prep. That is that is on its way. Um, I'm trying to enjoy some of the NBA landscape um, uh, around me for, for a little bit longer. But thank you so much again for listening. Until we meet again, I hope you all have a wonderful rest of your week. 